So I'm curious, building on that question you asked each other during the words of welcome, how many of you, maybe on a regular basis, have been stuck in your own noggin, in the hamster wheel of your mind, just sort of spinning around, caught in the, yeah, you guys are all eager to put your hands up, right? Me too. <laughs> uh, and, and I think in your beautiful call to worship, Frederick, um, he kind of pointed to that moment, this moment right after he lost his job when this whole series of questions sort of flooded his mind. What am I going to do? Who am I if I'm not working? Who am I if I don't have an income? How did this happen to me? Like, what now? For a moment, I'm guessing, and it wasn't a very long moment, it doesn't seem like, but I think Frederick, like many of us, were stuck in that place of just spinning, in that place of being stuck in a prison of ourself, a prison of our own mind. But then you very quickly reached out to others and brought other people in to escape that inner spinning. I've been thinking a lot about this, the prison of the self, the prison in our own mind and thoughts and body sometimes. And we all get stuck there sometimes. I know I do. And I know that this happens uh, at an alarming rate in my own life, especially when I'm really wrestling with something that feels like it's about my core identity, a core part of who I am in the world. It's connected to something deep and essential, it feels like. That's when I really go into that hamster wheel. And when I'm in that place, in that prison cell of the self, stuck in my head, my wife will often notice that my body is physically present in the space that we're in. But mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, I am in another galaxy, like deep in this inner place in my mind. And she'll look, look at me and kind of just stop whatever's going on until I finally kind of like pull up out of that interior space and see that she's looking at me. And she'll ask me very lovingly, where are you? <laughs> like, where, where did you go? And it takes that question to pull me out of this deep inner place I'm in to pull me back to the present moment, to help me see her, to see the other things around me, to let my own personal drama settle down, and to experience the larger wholeness of life itself. The assignment, says Barbara Brown Taylor, and I think it's the assignment for much of our life and much of our living, the assignment, says Barbara Brown Taylor, is to get over yourself. The assignment is to get over yourself. And we hear that, and I hear that, and um, I'm like, yeah, right. And it doesn't mean that we deny or ignore the very real needs and challenges of our lives, but it means that we practice seeing our other selves in the world. And remember that other people's lives are just as important, just as cherished, just as valuable as our own. The assignment is to get over yourself. It's easy to say. I read this in the book and I'm like, oh, hell yeah, that's right, get over yourself. Get over, it's easy to agree with that, right? Like, of course, get over yourself. It's easy to agree with that intellectually and just feel like that makes all kinds of sense. But the practice of actually getting over one's self, well, all of the religious traditions in the world have teachings and teachers and practices and reminders designed to help us do this because it's actually very difficult. What I'm about to share next in this sermon, it's connected to the message this morning. I promise that, though it may not, it may not seem like it initially. So just come with me on this little journey 
And it's all going to connect. It's part of a whole, I promise. So today is Palm Sunday. Many of you, I'm sure, are aware of that. If you grew up in a Christian church, you probably remember this day. And it's the day in the ancient story when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, an animal of peace, actually, in the Eastern traditions. He rides into Jerusalem amidst great celebration and fanfare. He rides in to usher in a new era, to upend the old order, to make real the kingdom of heaven on earth. And fellow Jews lay down their coats and they put down palm branches in front of him like they would for a king. Prior to this very triumphant entrance, Jesus has been traveling the countryside and he has been teaching the same wisdom that the desert fathers, who I mentioned in the reading this morning, the same wisdom that they would teach 300 years later, and that is that the hardest and most critical spiritual work in the world is to encounter another human being as a manifestation of the divine. No matter their station in life, their gender, their wealth, their sexual orientation, their class, or their race. The teaching that he was about, Jesus and many others before him and after him, is this simple teaching that being human makes the being holy. And simply encountering that holiness in another, seeing it, sensing it, recognizing that it mirrors a holiness in you, well, that can free you from the prison of your own mind. And that is a step toward creating a beloved community. So Jesus was teaching that this practice can free you up, can free you from the rules that bind you, the religious rules or the other rules, the rules that say, well, this group belongs and this group doesn't. This group is worthy of lots of attention and affection. This group, not so much. This group Definitely tend to them, leave this other group on the side of the road. Jesus had been teaching that it was others, often strangers and often friends and family too, who were most likely to free us from ourselves, who were most likely when we encountered them to allow us to experience the awesome power and the connectivity that is at the center of life. As Barbara Brown Taylor says, this was a gift he had, this divine practice of encounter, so valuable to him that he did his best to teach his followers how to do it too. And this is what he brought into Jerusalem with him, this vision of encountering others, this community he had built, this teaching that other people can spring us from the prison of ourselves. If you truly encounter them, if you don't try to fix or save or correct or control or enroll them, if you just encounter them as a manifestation of the divine, chances are you will be pulled out of yourself and connected to that energy source that powers everything. This message, of course, that Jesus was teaching wasn't new with him. The Hebrew scriptures are full of teachings about welcoming and affirming and protecting the light in each human heart, particularly the light of those who are from a different tribe or a different clan or a different religious group. But here's the thing. The Roman Empire, as well as other religious authorities of his time, didn't care for this teaching. This grassroots revolution was getting out of hand. 
his vision of the beloved community of seeing the divine in everyone was a little too much. And just a few days after this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Jesus, as you know in the story, is crucified because the empire has no interest in a new order, no interest in those gathered in the streets, no interest in a kingdom of equals, no interest in getting over itself. Jesus spent his free life calling people to wake up, to think bigger, to love more boldly. Said another way, and perhaps words that are easier to hear for some of you, in the words of Barbara Brown Taylor, the great wisdom traditions of the world all recognize that the main impediment to living a life of meaning is being self-absorbed. The main impediment to living a life of meaning is being self-absorbed. Self-absorption, being stuck in our own heads, being stuck with particular rules, being stuck with a vision of being perfect in the world, self-absorption, whatever it is, prevents us from experiencing a larger sense of wholeness as we encounter our other selves all around us. Jesus was calling people to wake up and to live with the daily practice of encounter. It's hard work and Preaching this message might get you killed, but it's a good way to spend your free life. I'm going to share a story with you. So a few years ago, my spiritual practice really felt like it was under attack. I was waking up early every morning. My practice at that time was to do some journaling, to sit with gratitude, to set some intentions for the day. And it felt like that spiritual practice was under attack. You see, what was happening is that our son was waking up uh, very early in the morning, just 10 minutes after I had settled into our big comfy chair where I would be sitting, and he'd roll out of bed and throw open the door to his room and then race across the house towards the chair where I was sitting, getting all centered and spiritually grounded (laughs) for the day. And he would race toward me. I'd been sitting for five minutes, ten minutes, just getting centered. And he wanted my full attention. And it was completely disrupting my morning practice. So I tried getting up even earlier. And our son would still get up. And he gave me permission to share this story. I asked him, I said, do you remember this? And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Um, And he said that it was fine. So I would get up even earlier. And then he would wake up just a few minutes after I got up and run to me and meet me in the chair. And so I got so frustrated with this, I felt so discombobulated that I actually spoke to my spiritual director about this. I said, here's the challenge I'm having. Like, uh, this is really driving me nuts. And as always, he listened, and then he asked a very simple question, as good spiritual instructors will do. And he said, he asked this. He said, what if you imagine your son as the holy, as the divine, as an expression of God, as an expression of unbounded love, desiring you. How might that change your experience? Well, it certainly couldn't make the experience any worse, I thought. (laughs) (laughs) And it might actually really help. So the next morning when 
I heard my son get out of bed, our son get out of bed, and heard the door swing open, and heard his little feet pitter-pattering toward me. I put down my journal, and I imagined that he was, in fact, the divine running to greet me early that morning. And instead of tensing up and thinking, why is he waking up so early? I thought, whoa, here comes this radiant being whose sole desire is to be with me. I imagined myself and him rushing toward a beloved. And then I saw him in that moment and that whole space in a whole new wholeness. As Barbara Brown Taylor writes, the point is to see the person standing right in front of you. The person who has no substitute, who can never be replaced, whose heart holds things for which there is no language, whose life is an unsolved mystery. That morning, I lost track of me and fell into a larger we. Barbara Brown Taylor calls this phenomenon divine union. And she says it's about escaping the lens of the self, the prison of the self, long enough to glimpse a wholeness. A wholeness in which it is impossible to make meaningful distinctions between God and other people, between self and other people. Everything exists in wholeness. And to be clear with you this morning, I'm not talking about some kind of like unhealthy merging with another or being totally emotionally enmeshed with someone else. I'm talking about the little self dying for just a moment so that we can live in that larger self. When at least one person, says Barbara Brown Taylor, is willing to treat the encounter as holy, capitalizing the you as well as the I, then we move toward a profound wholeness. We become the keys that unlock each other's prison cells. When that encounter is holy, we become the keys that can unlock each other's prison cells. And this can happen anywhere, anytime, when we get over ourselves and truly encounter another human being. And it just might be the best possible way to spend our one free life. You see the country we live in, you know the world we live in, and right now, so much still depends on division. This teaching of the divine encounter is actually a dangerous and subversive practice because it will smash the walls that divide us the walls of race and gender and religion and ethnicity, all of that will be smashed when we start to see our other selves out in the world. And you know, if you're paying attention, that right now we are in a political and cultural season where this practice of truly encountering another is critical. Because there is something racist and ugly rising up again in this country. Something hateful and xenophobic is on the move. 
And the spiritual work worthy of this moment is the practice of divine encounter, recognizing that our wholeness and the wholeness of our country is wrapped up in that practice. So if you haven't already, you can start to practice right now, today. The assignment is simple. Get over yourself, and you can start practicing right now, today. And the particulars could look like this. When the service is over, you can turn to someone next to you in the pew that you don't know or someone down in the social hall that you don't know, and you can greet them and see them and listen to them and imagine that you are both keys for one another that can spring you from the prison of yourself. You can imagine the person in front of you as I did with our son when he ran toward me as an expression of the divine come to greet you with some great wisdom. And beyond these walls, you can imagine all of our neighbors, those we know and those we do not yet know, you can imagine them as beautiful keys, all of us just waiting to set each other free. All of us just waiting to set each other free. May it be so. And amen.